Hello and welcome to my podcast, which is called Transatlantic Notebook. Uh, we're going to talk today and in this podcast in general about history, politics, and literature. Um, and we're going to explore the relationship between both shores of the big pond through some rather unconventional sources in pop culture. My name is A.C. Seifert. I will be your guide through the story, and I'm crossing my fingers that this is the first of many episodes of my podcast. Uh, there, it's out there. Now I have a commitment to make it. Why the transatlantic notebook? So in this podcast, we're going to look at the diffusion of French ideas in the U.S. and vice versa, um, and sometimes how they grew in parallel, primarily through the lens of sources that are traditionally ignored, like travel journals, adventure novels, or even fashion trends. My primary scholarship revolves around women, gender, and race in travel journals, so we're often going to talk about this. Uh, but in the first arc of the podcast, first season, if you will, we're looking at how Europeans invented ways to classify the living that eventually created, yes, eugenics. And we're going to explore the long game of eugenics through my period of work, which is the long 19th century. If you're not familiar with um, French historian works, French historians' works, uh, the long 19th century is a period that goes from 1789 to roughly uh, the beginning of or the end of World War I. So I'm going to use the end of World War I. Uh, for a very particular reason, which is as much as I, I think that World War I is a big uh, event in changing mentalities and changing things, uh, there is also a certain continuity uh, up until the 1920s between the 19th century and the 1920s. Um, so I'm going to use the end of World War I as a marker, as arbitrary as that sounds, although we'll talk... Uh, definitely about the interim war period and World War II. Our story starts in the late 18th century for this first episode, and we're going to talk about two very popular trends across the 19th century for this first episode, which uh, are a piece of fabric called Indienne, and I'll explain in a moment what this is, and we're also going to talk about crime stories and detective novels. So this is episode one, Indienne are the fashions of the rising middle and upper classes. So let me start by saying that with this episode and most others, there are considerations of trigger warnings. Even though we talk about things through very unconventional and at times funny sources, uh, we're also talking about the 19th century in Europe and North America, and it's not especially pleasant, especially if you consider that the logical evolution of what I'm about to trace is the Holocaust in Europe and the continued genocide of natives and slavery in the US. So trigger warning if you're sensitive to descriptions of violence, in particular sexual violence um, and racial violence, know that this podcast contains a number of very gruesome and very dark things. So take that into, take that into account as you're going and take care of yourself. So we're going to start with a bit of very recent pop culture. And I'll go back and forth between very recent meme and history to talk about how we see history and how history is represented in pop culture. 
Uh, so I'm going to talk about the meme about the American Revolution's founding fathers and main actors' age. Um, if you haven't seen it, it's a meme that has um, paintings of the founding fathers and their age during the American Revolution. Um, it's a meme that's alternatively been used by conservatives in the U.S. to denounce the lazy Gen Z or by liberals to applaud the school kids fighting for gun law changes. It's also a fairly inaccurate meme. Um, not on the age itself, which of course is accurate, but as far as we know from partial data, the upper classes in America and France didn't actually live that long at the time of the American Revolution. Uh, so a few founding fathers and Lafayette's longevity notwithstanding, the concept of childhood and youth wasn't the same at the time. So it's really weird to talk about how they were daring in youth when they wouldn't have had the same concept of youth. Lafayette, for example, was commissioned when he was 13 years old. So at 19, he'd actually been in, in the army for six years already. So it's pretty old for an officer or pretty long for an officer in the military. Um, data is very fragmentary before the Napoleonic Wars in France for men, but as far as we know from localized studies in Paris and several villages and cities in France, at the beginning of the 19th century, there isn't such a big gap in life expectancy. And further, life expectancy is not that big, and um, a gap in life expectancy between low, lower classes and wealthy classes. So to give you an idea, for example, let's take the city of Saint-Germain-d'Anxur, which is a village in Mayenne, west of Paris. In the course of the 19th century, life expectancy at 20 goes from 43 to 62 in Saint-Germain-d'Anxur. Uh, and I'm not mentioning the city out of nowhere. Um, it has been the, um, the goal of a study, a joint work done by Brown University's Center for Population Studies and UCLA School of Management. So it's one of those places where we have partial data and it shows that if you reach the age of 20, there was a great chance that you would live to 43 years old at the beginning of the 19th century and 62 years old at the end of the 19th century. So big, big, big progress in terms of uh, life expectancy. But also th this partial data shows that across the course of the 19th century, there is a big money gap that grows between lower classes and upper classes. Uh, in general, though, life expectancy really progresses in the 19th century through changes in the medical field, drastic urban renovations, um, and a lot of other factors that we're going to talk about throughout this podcast. And it's important to acknowledge that there is a big population growth for several reasons. One um, is that European population growth and American population growth is exponential through the century and leads to some booming effects in consumerism. The second reason is that while France is fairly slow to change from a massively agricultural economy to a mineral-based one, there is, starting in the 1830s, a massive wealth that stands in the, Fran in the hands of the French bourgeoisie and that's not just agriculturally based. France constitutes one of the most populated countries in the Western world. This has, in turn, a huge influence on markets. So let me backtrack for a second. While we're talking about my least favorite subject in the world, which is economic history, I have a history with economic history, and it's not a good one. But 
for the purpose of the of this podcast, uh, I want to draw from my uh, graduate school classes in economic history to talk a little bit about this notion of France and an agricultural based economy. When I was in high school, there was this traditional folklore version of French economy that stated that France was the grain warehouse of Europe, the feeder of Europe in the pre-World War II era. So as it turns out, and this has emerged relatively late from the field of economic history, this isn't true. Even before 1945, France actually imported a lot of its agricultural necessity and minerals at a far greater pace than it exported them. Uh, so France, for example, is a huge importer of cotton, which features heavily in today's story. So life expectancy ties into the economic reality of France and Europe in general. The fact that there is an increasing demand because of an increased life expectancy means that there is a boom in demand for, in particular, you guessed it, American cotton which in turn generalizes the slave economy in the U.S. And so we turn to the history of a humble piece of clothes, which starts not so humble, the dyed cotton fabric that undergoes several transitions through the period and changes names as it goes through the period. We're going to start out by talking about the Indienne, but this is a piece of fabric that will also be known later as calico or chintz in England. Um, and it's also the same process of fabrication that will give us the toile de Nîmes, which is known in English for the name denim, which of course gives its name to the blue collar worker. But we'll come back to this. So I'm going to turn here to the smash Netflix hit Bridgerton to speak of what people wear in it. If you haven't heard of it, Bridgerton is this pseudo-period drama um, in which a black duke during the Regency period falls in love with a white woman from a formerly wealthy but now destitute aristocratic family. There's a lot of drama. There's a woman who writes a newsletter uh, revealing all of the secrets of the aristocracy in town, etc., etc., uh, in Bridgerton, one of the things that's been loaded is the bright and richly patterned costumes. They're really wonderful and wonderfully designed. And there's a name for this pattern, um, this motif that we see throughout Bridgerton. And while I was watching, I was actually taking a lot of mental notes because while there has been controversy over the representation of, of the Regency period, I'm fascinating. I'm fascinated by the ways in which Bridgerton gets the mood of closing right and the mood of uh, social representations, right? And of course, the, the, as we can guess, the uh, controversy is about the fact that there's a black duke, as if there weren't any black people in London in the 18th and 19th century. But not the place, not the time. I'm going to concentrate here on the costumes. Um, in the series, dresses are richly decorated with black, bright floral patterns um, and male attire features pseudo-Indian motifs, uh, Indian from India, of course. This is where we get to the title of this episode. This type of fabric is called, in 18th century France, Indienne, which comes from Les Indes, Les Indiens. In England, it's known under several names, uh, from Calico to Chintz. Uh, Chintz is actually a Hindi word, 
actually. Um, and that's not the only subtle thing that Bridgerton uh, delighted me with. The, there's a character in the series uh, who's a French modiste. And she's completely spot on. And I think it's 100% by accident. But it was very exciting to, exciting to see how history gets represented. Um, it still happens that England and France pick up the trend of the Indian at the same time, roughly, from their commercial counters, um, colonies in India. But it's a couple of French merchants from the south of France who have the idea to go to India and extensively document not only the patterns, but also the dye process. So that's one piece of the Modiste's identity that's interesting. But also, it's enslaved peoples in the south of the United States who refine the process of dyeing and dye. Um, and the whole idea of putting mordant in the fabric to give, its, to give it its brightness actually comes from enslaved people. And it's what makes it possible in the early 19th century period to have this richly decorated fabrics. Because previously, um, it was really expensive to go through this process. And this invention of a new process of dyeing and producing indigo in um, the south of the United States makes it possible to have this richly decorated fabric generalized in Europe. So unwittingly, the writers of Bridgerton have mixed all of this in the modiste. She's French, bringing the Indian calico sheens that are all the rage in Versailles to the town. But her identity is almost certainly a biracial woman from the West Indies, which is also perfectly in sync with the entire story of the Indian, to which we shall return in a minute. I can't tell you how wonderful and fun it was for me to see how spot this character was. Uh, and I'm 100% sure that it's completely not on purpose. But still, unwittingly, it hits all of the history of the Andean. Um, and I was screaming in front of my TV, which my wife can attest to. To talk about the history of the Andean is to talk about the history of cotton importation in Europe from the Americas. And so it is to speak about the history of slavery. It's also to speak of the history of industrialization and crime stories, because it is parallel to population growth and, and, industrialization, and industrialization. I will never be able to say that word. So there really is a parallel between the Andean and the crime story, because there are two facets of the same population movement. As population grows, so do cities, so do the need for things like Andien. And as French historian Dominique Califa shows, this growth and this acceleration of urbanization favors the birth of a mythical, mythical underbelly in the minds of wealthy elites that will then justify eugenics as a way to cleanse society. To speak about the Indian and its little sisters, the Toile de Nîmes or the Cambrai, Denim, is to trace a change so systemic that it makes the white lower classes in Europe both increasingly oppressed and increasingly complicit in oppression, as is the paradox of white supremacy. Uh, if you haven't read it, I refer you to the excellent Dying of, what Dying of Whiteness by psychiatrist and sociologist Jonathan Metzl. Uh, Demand for American cotton is at the source of the boom 
of this enslaved population in the U.S., which until the end of the 18th century had stagnated. After the economic and industrial boom of Europe, this population of enslaved people is multiplied drastically across the long 19th century. There is a direct correlation, of course. So ironically, the Duke of Bridgerton, who's a black man, wears on his back a piece of, of fabric that symbolizes the destruction of both natives and uh, the black diasporas across the world. He's literally wearing the blood of black men and women. But let's go back to our late 18th century. In the early 1700s, one European out of four is French. And the French aristocracy and the bourgeoisie love Indienne. It's so popular, actually, that it threatens the traditional silk and, the wool, and, and wool merchants. And so they managed to get it banned, both in France and the UK. It's still brought to the country in the 17th century through its port of origin in France, Marseille. Uh, but it's extremely limited in the early uh, 18th century. The contraband market actually becomes very strong, though. Um, and the lobby is so important that in 1759, the French king relents and lets manufacturers set up shop again. The king of England does the same at exactly the same date for chins and calicos, um, the English version of Dian Dian. There's a bit of back and forth between France and India in designs and in monopoly of production in the, in the 17th century. There's also uh, some back and forth uh, through Africa because... Some of these patterns have traveled through Africa to go to Europe. Um, some of these processes of uh, producing dye and indigo in particular have gone through Europe. And so there is a little bit of a triangular back and forth um, that echoes the slave trade. The fabric, though, is originally very expensive. Um, it requires a lot of metallic salts to make sure that the dyes are vibrant throughout their lifetime. Um, but eventually, there is a conjunction of techniques and commercial practices that make the Indian much, much, much cheaper. And so now it's accessible to everyone. So remember this date of 1759 when the French king authorizes the Indienne, legalizes the Indienne again after a prohibition? Three things happen around that time. Uh, a teacher in America discovers a way to separate the seeds from the cotton fiber that's a thousand times more efficient than the hand process Virginia was using up until then. Uh, the industrial loom becomes widely used from England out. And enslaved peoples teach their masters in the South to extract indigo from common plants that grow aplenty in the region. This is really important because this particular blue is much more vibrant than the indigos that are produced in Europe. Uh, and if you're not familiar uh, with his work, I highly recommend um, the French historian who's worked on color, Michel Pastoureau. Um, he's done a lot of work in particular on, the, on blue, uh, the evolution of blue in European society and where blue was coming from. So... Before cotton becomes the first export of, Virgi of Virginia, indigo bolsters Virginia's economy. It actually saves Virginia's economy at the time. Uh, the demand for this blue pushes slave traders to um, kidnap more and more people in Africa, and so the enslaved population of the South 
starts growing exponentially. This date of 1759 is something that you will want to remember too because it is the publication date of Voltaire's Candide de l'Optimiste, a book every French person had to read in high school and probably hated, and in which there is a scene that involves an enslaved black man and Candide, the main character. The enslaved black man um, explains to a curious Candide why he is horribly mutilated, telling him that this is the result of trying to escape a sugarcane plantation. He ends with a very well-known sentence. C'est à ce prix que vous mangez du sucre en Europe. It is at this price that you eat sugar in Europe. The price being a literal pound of flesh enacted on black bodies. The scene, however, is very revealing in what it doesn't say. It's important to remember that at the time Voltaire writes this book, the western facet of France is flourishing thanks to the slave trade, and in particular the cities of Nantes, La Rochelle, and Bordeaux. Yet the slaver who, sl who sells the enslaved man is from the Netherlands. There, there are, of course, reasons for which the slave trader is not French, and anyone acquainted with Voltaire's frequent problems with royal justice understands this easily. But what's interesting in that is that in reading this in a contemporary setting, we tend to often elide the reality of the French slave trade and the fact that it brought goods and prosperity to the continent. So to be clear, it is almost certain that Voltaire meant sugar here, not as a luxury item, but as a substitute for, for an everyday household item, at least in the France and England he was used to frequent. But because it is Voltaire writing about the French upper class, we tend to forget, or writing to the French upper class rather, we tend to forget that sugar was actually widely imported and widely present in the late 18th century, early 19th century. If cane sugar is an expensive item, and sugar in general is an expensive item in the century preceding the book, by 1759 it's become much cheaper. And by the end of the 18th century, it's actually a common household item. The only reason why it's not as common in France as it is in England is purely because the French tend to eat less sugar. Uh, recipes and tastes in general tend towards the more savory aspect of things and not as sweet. But Voltaire, I believe, does intend this as a shorthand for everyday items in the scene. It comes across to us as something that is not a necessity of life, something that ought to be not so ubiquitous, for example, as cotton. So it's easy to detach oneself from slavery and the slave trade in the 18th century and its importance to the French economy in the 18th century, especially if your family is blue-collar all the way to the 18th century. The irony here, though, is that the very thing that gave its name to blue-collar workers is the product of slavery. The dye, the cotton, all of them were produced by enslaved, enslaved peoples. So more accurately for the, 18th, for the 18th and 19th century, we should perhaps replace the sugar with the idea of luxury that it entails with cotton. There are numerous historians who work on the globalization of the economy in the 19th century before 1930s, but specialist Van Beckert's uh, work on, is important on the cotton economy. Um, he mentions that cotton ushers a global economy for the first time in the modern era, and it's an economy that's entirely dependent upon slavery. 
And until slavery becomes a liability, it is a widely accepted economic model. The only reason it becomes unacceptable is fear of market downturns. Every time there is a slave revolt, the price of cotton goes up. And after Haiti's revolt, European powers start to fear the volatile nature of an economy that depends upon holding millions of human beings enslaved when they could revolt at any time. In the mid-1850s to late-1860s, there are millions of people working in the industry of cotton. One in 65 living humans, according to conservative estimates, work in the industry. It doesn't seem much, but consider there are only 53,700 and some Americans currently working in coal mines in the U.S., which is about 0.0007% of the world population. That's three zero. Uh, three zeros. One in 65 is 1.55% of the world by contrast. Now think about how much the miners in West Virginia have weight in the political landscape of this country and how much damage the Republican Party has done pretending to cater to them um, and think of what political power they could wield if there were 121 millions of them. That's why Beckert and others refer to cotton as the white gold. And that's why perhaps it speaks more to the scene Voltaire is describing if we replace sugar by cotton. It's an everyday ubiquitous item and hundreds of thousands of workers in the world depend on it. And it's all made possible and very profitable because of four millions enslaved Africans in America that are invisible to the vast majority of Europeans. But then the invisibility of what is considered to be abnormal or different is a long-standing theme in, in European history. Think, for example, of the report of the expedition against the nomadic tribes of Algeria uh, that's described in L'Amour, la Fantasia, or Braza de Savornian's notes on French administrators in the Congo. In the former case, the notes are so horrifying, written down by military hands participating in the slaughter of thousands of old people and children, they're so horrifying when they're read in the French parliament that the French parliament has them sealed, fearing that they would turn people away from colonization. Brez's notes uh, that are particularly acerbic against French administrators are whisked away in a file that's sealed until the late 1990s. That's right, the end of the 20th century. And there are 10 copies of it about in the world, and um, almost all 10 of them are absolutely... Uh, impossible to access until the end of the 20th century. In a similar vein, while the French are told that Algerians have accepted the colonization with joy because they are weak people, a student's revolt in Algiers at the end of the 19th century never appears in French newspapers. It's covered by Isabelle Eberhardt, uh, with those translation work for the military at the time, underlining the very ambiguous position of European women in colonial history. And she writes about it in a Swiss newspaper. A few weeks after that, she's mysteriously attacked by a man who almost acts her arm off with a saber. Supposedly, he's crazy. Uh, she's banned from French territories for that, which includes, of course, Algeria at the time. She goes around that banishment by actually marrying a French soldier. This echoes, of course, the invisibility of black and brown people in Europe, uh, not only just in terms of the fact that slavery is officially uh, prohibited on the continent itself. So there are virtually almost zero slaves on the continent in, um, the, at the time that the slave trade starts. Uh, there are black and brown people, but uh, they're made invisible 
um, because of the introduction to trade slaves directly on the continent. There are free black and brown people that circulate across Europe and they suffer from an invisibility that this time is an historiographical invisibility. Uh, they're generally not very well uh, talked of in terms of historical work. This invisibility is doubled up in the 19th century with the supremely cynical fake visibility of the human zoo. Uh, the human zoo is to race in a long century what the freak show or the medical case report are to disabled people and to gender. Uh, they're extremely popular in France. They never take as well in the U.S. in big part because... Um, there is the Rodeo show that's already occupying that space in the freak show, but also because by then there's a long-standing tradition of free and educated black men and women. Um, so while human zoos are particularly popular in the south of the United States, there's an intense pushback in the north. For example, in 1906, which is uh, the first and last time the Bronx Zoo attempts to show a pygmy man, uh, his name is Ota Benga. Um, they attempt to show him in a cage as part of a human zoo exhibition. There's a delegation of black churches that petitions the mayor and gets the whole show shut down within weeks of its opening. Uh, Benga is released to the care of a black orphanage in Brooklyn. The story, unfortunately, doesn't end really well for Benga after a brief reprieve during which he gets medical assistance for his teeth, which horrifyingly had been filed to make him look more like a cannibal. Um, so after this reprieve is hounded by the press and homesick, he ends up taking his own life around uh, World War Two, or World War One. Sorry, um, around 1916. So these human zoos in Europe uh, are very popular, and they pathologize black bodies in a way that echoes the popularity of doctors like Charcot, whose work inspires the French cabaret. And they also echo the popularity of the crime novel, playing on the same undercurrent of fetishized underbelly. In the 1930s, for example, a human zoo in the Marseille colonial exhibition is publicized with a flyer featuring dark hunch figures and the slogan, Ils arrivent, they're coming, playing up the fear of black men instilled in the bourgeois mind. Human zoos are popular because they fester on the same mindset that sees poverty in cities as a disease that needs to be examined and excised. Sort of the same way Zola proclaims his books are a laboratory on poverty and its generational ailments. Across the long 19th century, while cities grow exponentially and often anarchically, works of urbanizations are undertaken. This have as a premise of better hygiene, as big cities are ravaged by the typhus and the cholera, but they also conveniently serve as a way to prevent revolt, see the work of Osman in Paris. The discourse that surrounds these public policies, both those around the treatment of people of color and those around the cities as loci of crime, is very steeped in pseudoscience. For example, speeding is prohibited in San Francisco, Boston, and Paris because it helps reduce cholera. Drinking is prohibited in the U.S. because supposedly it helps lower crime rates. Cemeteries are moved for disease avoidance. Jails are, are displaced because older jails were unsanitary. Entire blocks are raised so the city can breathe. And meanwhile, as public policies are justified by cleanliness, a movement in which American women have an integral part, tenant lows are so lax that millions of people live in what are in effect vertical slums. And more than six millions of men, women, and children at the end of the 19th century are treated like furniture and worse in the U.S. In effect, eugenics are a first 
attempt to render the dirty consequences of capitalism invisible because bourgeois people are freaked out by this effects the attempt to excise them through violence Therese Benson, who's a French woman on whom I've worked for my dissertation, um, was, tra um, was traveling to Boston in the 1890s, and she remarks that moving the immigration centers of America and its jails has the non-negligible non effect of making misery invisible to the fem female benefactors of the various politeness societies of the city, making them very self-satisfied with the progress of civilization in their hometown. Loin des yeux, loin du coeur, as we say in French. Benson, at the time, already perceived the irony and the hypocrisy of making misery invisible, but not dealing with it. This is what Dominique Califa describes in some of his best-selling work, um, the French historians who unfortunately took his life uh, way too early last year. Um, he speaks about the invention of the underworld by the French bourgeoisie in his books, a process that's recently been termed by scholars and journalists, elite panic. Rebecca Stolnit talks about this um, in her Facebook communications. Um, this ties into the human zoos through its process of pathologization of the other, a process meant to evoke both repulsion and fear, but also a fascination that's sexual in nature. With the increasing mechanization of field labor, young men move to cities in search of labor and fortune. See any book by Emile Zola or Balzac or Maupassant for literary examples of provincial dances hoping to make it in Paris or blue-collar workers temporarily moving to Paris. And then increasingly at the end of the 19th century, staying. So with the appearance of this young man, uh, almost all of whom are actually single because they hope to make their fortune in Paris and then go back to their regions to get married, Cities and knights become symbols of danger in the bourgeois psyche. And so Khalifa shows in his books how the upper classes romanticized the idea of dangerous cities, how even minor crimes got pressed, and how starting in the 19th century and continuing in the early 20th century, the fait divers, the criminal news, takes over the French press and the European press in general, although there are different iterations and evolutions here because the detective story does not take well in France for a variety of reasons, um, and it does in the US and the UK. There's plenty of material to read from for the outraged bourgeois with ton of less than reputable newspapers running the gamut of crime from the most spectacular to the strangest, from the worst and most terrible to the funniest. Some of these newspapers were still publishing into the late 19th century and 20th century even, by the way. Uh, like the pillar of this whole process, Detective, which I still remember as a little girl seeing uh, in the kiosk, in the newspaper kiosk. Even as death disappears from home and everyday life, it takes a stronghold in the mind of the public through these horrifying stories. And yes, morgue visits, morgue visits are an actual Sunday walk thing in Paris in the 19th century. They start mainly as a way to identify Jane and John Doe's who've died by drowning themselves in the Seine, but there's a whole literary attraction for the cadaver that's way different than the Ars Moriendi that we have in the Middle Ages. See, for example, the chilling... Thérèse Raquin, a Zola novel, but also Infernalia, a prose poem, short story, by um, Isabelle Eberhardt. Um, she wrote it when she was 18, and it features a, a young morgue attendant en engaging in necrophilia. It's absolutely horrifying. Um, so this crimes that Le Tout Paris, the whole Paris, and to some extent the whole Chicago, New York, London, etc., romanticize, they run the gamut, really. 
there's a really, really disturbing, like the white city serial killer, H.H. H. Holmes, who operated during the Chicago World Fair in 1893 and built a three-story torture and murder castle. Uh, some were just run-of-the-mill disturbing, such as the, vampi the Vampire of Montmartre, a young surgeon who opened freshly dug graves and horribly mutilated cadavers. And then there's the somewhat funny, should have known better dude stories, like the Gang of the Auvergnat. Uh, the Auvergnat were the people of a region in France that's still very rural to this day. Although to some extent, I like to remind that its biggest city uh, was host to the Michelin Tires factory. Uh, Auvergnat have a, red, a really, really terrible reputation in 19th century Paris. Uh, Balzac says at some point in Le Cousin Ponce that one of the characters who's in Auvergnat is of the same species of man that Jews are, which is very telling when you know how big of an anti-Semite Balzac is. Bretons are the stupidest of the French, according to public lore, frequently represented as public drunks or victims, um, like Pobouille, the maid from the eponym Zola work, uh, who's a bumbling provincial whose naivety or, bo or boss abuses by raping her. Um, there's also the comic book Bécassine, which is a good example of the naive Breton. While everyone loves Bécassine, there's no denying that she's not the sharpest pencil in the drawer. This, coupled with frequent public parties, make the Breton frequent buffons of, no of novels in the long 19th century. Auvergnat, on the other hand, are downright criminals. They're the rapacious, malicious, self-serving rats of the world, according to Parisian crime newspapers. In the later part of the century, a well-trained gang made headlines by putting together an ingenious scheme to steal, identify a countryman long installed, build their trust by using knowledge of their hometown and familial link, and get their help to get goods delivered for the grand opening of a pseudo-café. Said goods were delivered à crédit, which promises to pay later, and on the good credit of the naive individual will lend them, will lend them their name. Presto, the Auvergnat would disappear with expensive coffee beans, dried ham, cookies and fruit pastes, and of course a ton of other luxury goods and furniture that the gang would promptly resell in Auvergne. There's also the more sordid, sordid story of an inn, the Red Inn of Lens, which isn't actually in the region of Auvergne, although it's associated with Auvergne because it's on the way to the city of Puy-en-Velay. The owners, the Martin, are accused at some point of killing up to 50, 50 of their clients, uh, and they seem to have partially inspired the Thénardier in Lémez. Although, to hear the testimonies at the time, it's more Sweeney Todd than Thénardier. Rumors of pot pies made with feet emerge at the peak of the red in fever. All these lovely people swirl in the imagination of the Parisian, and when Louvernia isn't straight up stealing, he's drunk anyways, so there's that. So that contributes to a form of elite panic, which in combination with the undercurrent of fear that regulates our relationship to the quote-unquote savages of the colonized land, contributes to creating a need that eugenics will fulfill for the bourgeoisie. It's a security blanket of horrors that reassures them that the bad thing in society will be excised, that the Cour des Miracles, the Court of Miracles, the nickname of the underbelly of Paris in Notre-Dame de Paris, Notre-Dame of Paris, um, the Court of Miracles is a place that can be sanitized, just like Osmanian Paris. So these two trends of the Indian and the crime stories are actually two cultural threads that can be found with the same causes. The progressive transformation of the economy 
and they have different target groups. But they are of the same facet. They are of the same issue. They rely on the same mechanisms that Khalifa describes in Vice, Crime and Poverty, how the Western imagination invented the other world. It's a mechanism of invention and reproduction that extends ad nauseam the inside of polluted and richly colored 18th century salons into a mode of conversation with the world. It's a form of policing in which white women are extensively involved as it represents a gender consideration too. If women are relegated to the inside, then making the outside more like the inside makes it also more accessible to them. This permeability between imagination households and public policy starts with the salon, which can promote or demote anyone socially in the 18th century as a way for women to exert a power that the law refuses them and continues with the charity societies of the United States and France. It's a creation of meaning and identities that transform society. It starts in Paris in the early 19th century with closing industry bosses, notably those living Faubourg Saint-Marcel who are amongst the richest in France. Men of these families are first part of the National Guard in France, and then part of the charity councils that oversee food distribution, but also the morality of the neighborhoods in the same way Roman censors survey the magistrate. Familiar names are amongst those councils of charity like Jussieu, Geoffroy Saint-Hilaire, and others. This morality role that echoes one of the role of the Comité de Salut Public during the French Revolution is what perseveres in public policy throughout the the 19th century. But progressively, this work becomes that women, on one hand, in charity institutions, and the work of scientists. And from the start here, I should mention that the colonization of the West in the United States plays a huge role in a difference in gender between the Parisian bourgeoisie and the American bourgeoisie. Because women are integral part and are an integral part of homesteading in the U.S., they become integral parts of public policies early on in the U.S. In fact, American women earn the right to vote and then lose it, and before their French brethren. But their true influence in the later part of the 19th century is that moral virtue-controlling component that we saw earlier appear in Paris. Sarah Deutsch, in her book on women and Boston in the 19th century, uses the expression moral, moral geography which refers not only to the bourgeoisie, but also to working class women. What she says in her introduction is very important. Women took a part not only in answering to changes in the map of the city as it grew, but they shaped the map of Boston. They shaped public spaces according to their needs. And one of the ways in which American women shaped the city in the U.S. is through prohibition societies. Traveling through the tramway in Boston in the late part of 1894, Therese Benson writes that men are loath to speak in the U.S., including in Chicago, because they are polite towards women. In the train that brings her to the West, Olympe Audouard, another French traveler, writes in 1868 that even blue-collar Americans are fiercely respectful of women, and that traveling alone as she is on the train never feels unsafe because these men see in her their wife, sister, mother, daughter, and would never touch her. Benson, again, in 1893, writes of the Chicago Columbian Fair of 1892-1893 that it shapes the city thanks to women, and it is the first world fair in which women have a big planning role in the U.S. What Benson recognizes in Chicago and in Boston is a self-image of power, 
and public policies that are detached from a legal side. It's the portrait of a bourgeoisie that has become self-aware and knows how to impose modes of oppressions while sounding morally interested in the welfare of the marginalized and the welfare of everyone at large. This is the end of this episode. In the next episode, we'll talk about the role of science in this process of moralizing the outside space and how it got its root in the pseudoscience of rationalization, which starts with Cuvier. In the meantime, if you're interested in learning more about all of the references that I've talked about, I will post them on my website at accipher.wordpress.com. That's accipher, S-I-E-F-F-E-R-T, dot wordpress.com slash transatlantic notebook.